Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Lockstella Saga on trial. I'm John. Oh, that's a new way to go. I'm Andy. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to change it up once in a while, Andy. Well, there you go. And this is our fifth episode on Lockstella Saga. That is the saga of the people of the Salmon River Valley. With, yeah, with a with a disappointing lack of actual salmon-based content so far. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't recall any salmon-based content. It's a, it's a tremendous disappointment to our pescatarian listenership. <laughs> right. Probably not great for the cats in the audience either. So they're get, they're, they got their hopes up. Right. You know? Well, we'll see what we can do for them later in the episode. Oh, and uh, speaking of pets, you've you've been... Ooh, uh, look at you. Ooh, that's a suspiciously slick segue. <laughs> oh, it all sets up so nicely. I, I uh-huh. say you've been uh, pretty busy since our last episode. Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of stole my thunder last time when you announced your new dog. Yeah, the lovely Daphne. She's the fitting lovely in very well. Daphne. Yeah. Uh, as it happens, we were also in the market for a third dog, and See, a couple of days ago, we found a puppy through a rescue organization. Very good. He is a true mutt, uh, okay. about 12 weeks old, and he's already settling into tormenting our older dogs. <laughs> and uh, that's really great. Uh, I saw the picture. Very, very cute. Uh, you should... Uh, bit of a ruffian. It looks like a bit of a ruffian. Well, send me uh, another picture that we can, uh, or you can just post it yourself if you wanted to, but... I'll send, I'll send you a picture. On. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, that'll go out on our social media. Um, and uh, what, uh, pray tell, did you name this dog? Well, uh, we have a bit of a theme at my house. Right, our our current dogs are named Theodore of Tarsus and Hadrian of Canterbury. And uh-huh. there's like four people out there who were very impressed with that. Uh, we've also had older rescue dogs who are no longer with us: uh, Mercatella of Bath and Cuthbert of Lindisfarne. Mm-hmm. So uh, very heavy on the Anglo-Saxon England, I. Yeah, I, I keep trying to edge us toward Anglo-Scandinavian, uh-huh. uh, but my kids picked the new guy's name from a list, and so we've added Wolfston of York to the family. Oh, see, Wolfston, I I really like Wolfston yeah. a, a lot. You know, it's a great name for a dog and a great name for uh, an archbishop. Exactly. I mean, you can call yeah. him Wolfie. That's right. You can call him Wolfie. I think it's a perfect name. Um, yep. Really good job. So and, any other names know, on the list that you Well, it could have been discarded? a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse, actually. My wife wanted Dunstan, uh, but the, <laughs> the kids vetoed it. That's great. Ali over at Rex Hector would never have forgiven you if you named your dog Dunstan. I, I don't know. I mean, is it really such an honor to have the dog named after you? I mean, <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. I'd be honored, but somehow I don't think Dunstan the Fun Sponge would see it as an honor. Probably not, no. Uh, so uh, with both of us adding to our menageries of uh, canines, how's uh, mm-hmm. progress on other fronts? You've been digging any ditches lately? <laughs> I actually built a woodshed this weekend. Oh, well, well you already exciting. had another shed, didn't you? Uh, well, this is uh, attached to the sh- the shed that I just built. It's a little alcove off to the side for uh-huh. firewood. Look at you, John. Look at I, you. I, I had to learn to um, lay shingle for this one. It was great. Oh, well, no. Um, but you know, speaking of uh, other kinds of progress, how we uh, how we doing on this on this uh, lifestyle saga? Um, slow and steady. Yeah, uh, we're about a quarter of the way through the saga so far, and things are picking up steam. Yeah. Uh, but before we can get to any further progress, we need to take a look in the rearview mirror and see what happened. Last time on Saga Thing. Olaf Peacock, the son of Hoskell the Chieftain and Melkorka the Irish princess turned slave, developed into a fine young man, and a real dreamboat to boot. When a Norwegian anchor clanker called Orne arrived, Melkorka set her sights on sending her boy to meet his grandfather in Ireland. 
lacking the funds to pay for the trip herself, she got hitched to her amorous neighbour, Thorbjorn Pockmarked. And while the newlyweds set about making little baby Lambie, Olaf Peacock set sail for Ireland by way of Norway. There he met King Harold Greycloak and his dear old mum, the lovely Queen Gunnild. Drawn in by Olaf's natural charms and good looks, Gunnild agreed to foot the bill for his trip to Ireland. Olaf and company received a hostile welcome from some opportunistic Irish locals, but thanks to Olaf's dashing figure and bold speech, they got out of the scrape with relative ease. Soon enough, Olaf was meeting his mother's elderly foster mother, slapping backs with Grandpa Mercjotten, and receiving the keys to the kingdom. By spring, he's been offered a cushy gig as heir to the Irish throne. Olaf wisely rejected the crown and set sail for Iceland by way of Norway. Of course. Is there any other way? Well, you could go north and a little west. Back home in Iceland, Olaf peacocks around in his fancy new duds. With his royal Irish ancestry firmly established, Olaf is the apple of daddy's eye. And Hoskold wants to strike while the iron's hot to find his boy a good match. After some awkward negotiations, Olaf ties the knot with none other than Thorgerd, daughter of the famous warrior poet Ale Scotlagrimson. But such a powerful couple attracts jealousy and rivalries. We join them now as they settle into a new life together in the Salmon River Valley and try to negotiate the pitfalls in politics and family ties. Can Olaf and Thorgerd succeed when so many want to see them fail? Find out this time in Laxdala Saga, chapters 24 to 31. So we've got a lot to cover this time. Uh, shipwrecks, sibling rivalry, a dead foster father, an undead monster, good marriages, bad marriages, tricky dying requests, cursed swords, and a whole building covered in poetry. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, we left off last time with the wedding bells for Olaf and Thorgerd still ringing in our ears. Why don't we go in and check on how things are going with them? Part 13. The Haunting of Hjotterholt. Ooh, a haunting. Will the, uh, will the ghost seal be making another appearance, maybe? <laughs> Sadly, no. Well, that's probably for the best. Yeah, probably. Now, you may be wondering, what's Hjotterholt? And where's Hjotterholt? No, no, I'm not wondering at all. I know exactly where it is. Uh, there's even a nice little uh, wooden cross church on the site now. I know that you know where it is, Matt Boy. We haven't mentioned Hjalderhot on the podcast because the site hasn't been settled in the text yet. That's true. Uh, we should tell the story of how it's settled because it's pretty impressive yeah. and a little strange. Yeah, as we discussed at the end of our last episode, Olaf Peacock and his wife Thorgerd took over Godestather the spring before Thord Godi passed away. They lived there for a time and did actually really well for themselves. They turned Godestather into one of the most impressive farms in the valley. Mm -hmm. And along the way, they had a daughter who, by the way, they named Thurid, and she'll pop up again near the end of the episode. Yeah, and I'll mention it here because it will it will be relevant later, though not for a few episodes, but Olaf and Thorgerith have a large enough farm to support more than just their immediate family. Among their servants are two brothers, both of them called An, and another man named Bainir. Okay, well, a couple of comments we have to get to here. First of all, two brothers, both named An. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah, I mean, it's an odd and unimaginative choice by their parents, for sure. But uh, they are distinguished by their nicknames. So that's well, helpful. nicknames are very useful that way. Yeah. One is called Aun the White, and the other is called Aun the Black. Again, not terribly imaginative. Uh, but at least we can tell which is which. 
Uh, presumably yes. they were color coded as children. Uh, my second <laughs> comment is about Banyer. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to say Banyer, it's kind of an interesting name for a servant. Oh, why is that? Well, it literally means helper. Oh, does it? So they, they, they have a helper who's called helper. Again, that's not very imaginative. It's a real name, though. Uh, okay. We'll actually we'll even run into a banner when we eventually get to uh, Faringa Saga. Uh, but I thought the name choice was interesting here, just because of his, his profession. Yeah, it is. Uh, now, these three men are described as good carpenters and capable men. Uh, we won't see them for a while, but uh, they all show up again later. And you will definitely be hearing more about Alm the Black. Yeah. Now, we'll get a belly full of him in a few episodes. Ooh, nice one, John. <laughs> you set him up by knock him down. And okay, nobody sure. knows why that's funny yet. <laughs> well, some people who've read the saga, they know. <laughs> okay, so Olaf Peacock and his family, they're doing quite well for themselves at Godestaner. And Olaf has become a leading man in the district, something that his elderly father is quite proud of. Yeah, there's there's no actual resentment from Hoskald about Olaf's emergence as a... Uh, an important man in the region, maybe the most important man in the region. Yeah. He actually even encourages others to consult Olaf if they come to him for advice. Mm-hmm. Which really helps push Olaf to the top of the social ladder. Now, being raised by both Hoskold and Thord Godi, Olaf is a keen fellow with an eye for opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he notices that the farm right next door has been left deserted for most of his life. And it looks like a good piece of property to him. Right. Now... Um, we know, and you know if you remember from last episode, that land is deserted because Killerhrop, the bully from a few episodes back, uh, died there and then started haunting the place. Yeah. Uh, he was sort of, you know, a sort of junior Thorolf Twistfoot-style killer, right? Uh, yeah. So Hrop's brother-in-law, Thorsten, tried to take over Hrop's father, but then he and his entire family drowned during the move by ship to take the farm. Yeah, no thanks to that dirty seal. No, the seal definitely didn't help matters. Uh, <laughs> Ropstather then fell to Thorkel Scarf, who manipulated a survivor's story to shift the inheritance over to his wife, who was one of mm-hmm. Thorsten's daughters. Yeah, it's all very complicated, but the short of it is that Thorkel Scarf, he didn't really use the property because Killer Hrop's revenant continued to appear and make things difficult for anyone who settled on Ropstather. Right, and that's and because of that, uh, Olaf Peacock is able to buy the property on the cheap uh, for only three marks of silver, which is far, far below its real value. Yeah, I, I really like this part because it was a nice insight into early Icelandic real estate. Mm-hmm. The saga tells us that the property was valued for its vast stretches of prime pasture lands, access to salmon fishing and seal hunting, and it's, it even had a woodland nearby. Yep, there you go, our first reference to salmon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Knew it would come in eventually. Hey, honey, this property's got everything we're looking for. Look at all this land and a salmon river right here. We could raise a family here. Get out. That's a lovely place, but I don't think it's good for us. Bye. Uh, Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But but that doesn't bother Olaf none. He buys the property from Thorkel Scarf and builds a new house in a clearing using the wood from the forest. Yeah, and because Olaf doesn't exactly take the subtle route in anything... His moving day is a real spectacle. Yeah, uh, he sends a message ahead in time. Uh, uh, he sends a message ahead of time to his father, asking that Hoskold stand outside at his own house at uh, Hoskoldstaller, uh, so that he can watch them pass by in the morning on the way to the new home. Hoskold agrees, and what he sees is an ostentatious parade of wealth that only Olaf Peacock would even consider. 
Yeah. Uh, as the saga says, and we're going to use the uh, Kniva Kun's translation as usual. Olaf then organized a procession. The men at the front drove the sheep, which were the most difficult to handle. Next came the milking ewes and cattle from the home pastures, followed by steers, calves, and heifers, with the pack horses bringing up the rear. The members of the household were placed at close intervals to keep the livestock from straying off course. Those at the front had reached the new farm, when Olaf himself rode out of the yard at Godstother. The line stretched unbroken between the two properties. So that's a that's a hell of a parade. <laughs> and if you're wondering, this line of livestock would have stretched roughly three miles, give or take. Yeah. That's the uh, the distance between the two properties. Incredible. Thanks, map boy. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, <laughs> off to solve another problem using cartography. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, three miles is a lot of livestock. It is, and it's enough to impress Hoskold, that's for sure. He stands proudly at his own farm, uh, the farm that he had inherited from his own father, Dalakol, and he watches this entire procession. And he remarks to his wife, Joran, Unless I guess wrongly, things will turn out very well for that boy, and his name will be remembered for a long time after we're gone. (laughs) And let's remember the relationship here. Uh, Joran agrees with him, sort of. Uh, and she says, hmm, with his wealth, the slave woman's son should be able to make a name for himself. Yeah. Joran never really warmed to the idea of Melkorka and Olaf, did she? <laughs> no. and, you know, I can't blame her. No, I mean, Joran's comment here is a, it's a nice reminder from the author about Hoskell's betrayal uh, of his marriage and its effect on his relationship with his wife. Yeah, absolutely. And from the perspective of Hoskell and Olaf, though, it, it all turned out perfectly. But uh, I do love that the author never lets the male perspective stand alone and unchecked in this narrative. It's one of the nice touches that really sets this saga apart from so many of the other stories we've covered in the podcast. Yeah. Um, I know we keep harping on this, but it's a, it really is sort of one of the defining characteristics of this saga. Right? While the women usually have a role to play in most sagas, they typically play that role in relative silence or behind the scenes. Uh, yeah, unless they're acting as instigators or motivators for male violence. Right. But in Lockstall's saga, we encounter women with opinions, real voices, right? Women who mm-hmm. affect the world around them. Yeah. Just think of all the strong women we've encountered so far in this saga. Uh, Auth the Deep-Minded, Melkorka, Jorun, Thorgard Aelsdalder, uh, the ex-wife of Thord Godi, even. Vigdis, yeah, 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 that's a good list. And we're not done yet. We're still only, as we said, a quarter way through the saga, right? Each of these women right. takes an active role in their section of the saga, even when that section is otherwise concerned with the political relationships of men. Each of these women get to speak and respond to the actions of men, but also to initiate actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in doing so, they they all, they participate in the shaping of events. I think all of that is very refreshing. It's one of the reasons that we love this saga. Well, and as we said, we're just getting started. Right? As the saga progresses, we'll see this interest in female experience develop in some interesting ways. Yeah, indeed. Uh, sadly for Joran, this is her last appearance in the saga. Oh, did she die? Well, we all die eventually, John. Speak for uh, yourself. But, uh, surely Joran meets her fate someday, but as the saga now shifts its focus to Olaf Peacock and the next generation, there's not as much for Joran to do. She's just simply not mentioned again. We don't know what becomes of her. Wow, Andy. Way to undercut everything we just said about women in the saga. I mean, it does kind of, but there are plenty of other women left to fill the void left by Joran Bjarnadalter. So for now... We should just return to Olaf and his parade of livestock. Sure. Uh, Well, (laughs) the parade finishes up and Olaf arrives with the last of the herd, just as the farmhands are unloading the horses' packs. 
He dismounts and dramatically announces to all present that the farm will be called Hjallerholt, which means Herdwood. Well, how exciting. Ooh. It is. Ooh. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's a moment. Uh, and things go really well there for Olaf and Thorgrid and their young daughter, Thurit. Olaf's reputation continues to grow, and so does his herd of livestock, so presumably he'll have a four-mile parade next year. <laughs> Life just couldn't be better. Yes. Until one night. Dun, dun, dun. One of Olaf's farmhands, who's in charge of the beef cattle, approaches him to ask for other duties. When Olaf tells him that he should be happy with the position that he has, the man explains that he'd rather leave the farm altogether than continue caring for the <laughs> cattle. Right, and Olaf is initially suspicious and a little annoyed. Right? He assumes that the farmhand might just be lazy or causing trouble. But he senses something in the man that suggests there might be more to the story. Mm-hmm. So he takes his spear, King's Gift, right, the spear that he got uh, on his travels. And he takes it in hand and says, I'll accompany you tonight when you tie the animals in their stalls. And if I find you've got any cause for complaint, I won't blame you. Yeah. And when they get to the cowshed, Olaf urges the farmhand to go inside and tie the animals that he herds through the doorway. But as soon as the man approaches the door to the cowshed, he turns around and runs straight back into Olaf's arms. And he cries, Hrop is there, standing in the doorway. He's reaching out for me. And I've had my fill of wrestling with him. <laughs> Acting! Hrop's back! <laughs> Hrop never left, John. Yeah. Uh... Well, Olaf uh, is not that easily dissuaded. He grips his gold-inlaid spear and approaches the door. Uh, Hrop is standing there, motionless, staring at him with dead eyes. Hmm. Olaf thrusts the point of King's gift toward the Revenant, but Hrop suddenly moves. He grabs the spear just above the blade with both hands, and with one quick twist, he breaks the shaft. Yes, but Olaf is undaunted. He rushes at Hrop, trying to grapple at him with his bare hands. He's either a true hero or a guy who really wants that gold spearhead back. <laughs> right. Well, as he moves forward, Hrop sinks into the earth beneath Olaf's feet. And Olaf is left standing there alone with only the bottom half of King's Gift in his hand. Oh, yeah. Hrop got away with the fancy spearhead. Yeah, but this uh, this just sets up the sequel where Olaf finally confronts Hrop and takes back his nope, favorite... Nope, Sorry. No sequel here. No grand battle where our hero Olaf Peacock triumphs over the evil revenant, Hrop. Nope. Uh, the night is hmm. quiet now, so Olaf and the farmhand tie the animals up in the cowshed. They head okay. back to the farm and get some sleep, and in the morning, Olaf rides out to where Hrop had been buried. He digs him up and finds his body perfectly preserved. Of course, yes. And that's not all. Inside the grave, just near Hrop's hand, he finds, of course, the Blade of King's Gift. Ooh, so spooky. And the call came from inside the house, and the hook was found in the bumper of the car, and what else? <laughs> well, Hrop uh, uh, finally removed the ribbon <laughs> around his neck, and uh, right. his head fell off. Ooh. Uh, Olaf uh, has the body removed and burned on a huge bonfire. Yeah. Uh, all the ashes are collected and taken out to sea and disposed of. But uh, some of the ashes got away, right? And then mm. a cow starts licking those ashes and hanging out with a spectral bull nearby. And then that cow gets pregnant. Nope, and- nope, nope. You're thinking of Thorl Twistfoot and Thorot. It's a different I story. I mean, it sounds pretty similar. It does, but these ashes were disposed of properly. Uh, no uh, spectral bulls roaming around and impregnating cows in recovery. Um, wait a minute. So that's it? The story's done? 
I feel like I feel like this author could learn a lot from Arbiga Saga. Because uh, <laughs> that it, it, we're supposed to accept that as the haunting of Yartherholt. Yep. Crops gone. All I mean, well that's kind of disappointing. I mean, Sorry. your title for this section was, I'm going to say, a little misleading, if you ask me. It drew you in, didn't it? Yeah, but I mean, there wasn't really any haunting, was there? I, was there a revenant? Yes, there was. Was there a scared farmhand? Sure, but I mean... Up, 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 no buts. But me no buts. Haunting of Hjallerholt. I stand by it. On to the okay. next section. Part 14. Hoskull's Last Hurrah. Well, that doesn't bode well for Hoskuld. I mean, it doesn't, but remember, you know, we said before, we're all of us mortal. And we were already told that he was quite elderly back in Chapter 20, which was at the beginning of our previous episode. Well, fair He's enough. had a good long innings. A lot has happened since then, and uh, mm-hmm. we've got a whole new generation taking center stage at this point. And speaking of which, we really should remind everyone really quickly about a few people in Hoskuld's family. Like his half-brother, Hrut. I mean, definitely, although I don't think anyone's going to forget about Hrut. Uh, I was thinking about Hoskuld's sons. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Olaf Peacock, but we haven't mentioned his half-brothers in a while. Right, so just a quick refresher here. Uh, there's Thorlik and Bard. Um, and, of course, they have a sister named Holgrith Longlegs, famous for another saga. Uh, but the two sons are what we're curious about right now. Yeah. Uh, Thorlik has a farm at Kamsness, uh, the area... It was named for that time that Al the Deep-Minded lost her comb. Oh, well, who could forget? Uh, now, I want, in the first episode, you're probably all wondering why we bothered mentioning a place where Al lost her comb, and this is why. Yeah, it's a huge payoff. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in addition to running a farm at Kamsness, uh, Thorlik is in charge of most of Hoskill's movable property. Uh, he's said to be anything but a peaceable man. Uh, and, of course, he's a great warrior who spent some time overseas as a successful merchant. He's gained a great reputation on Viking expeditions. Uh, and we should note that Thorlik doesn't get along with Uncle Hrut very well at all. Well, great. Um, now, Barth, uh, Hoskull's other son, was also a merchant for a time. And he lives at home now uh, and runs the farm alongside his father really well. Uh, we don't know how he feels about his Uncle Hrut, but it's quite clear that he's very fond of his brother Olaf Peacock. Okay. And that's all the setup we really need to get going with Hoskuld's last hurrah. Uh, at some point after Olaf is settled in at Hellerholt, uh, Hrut sets a slave called Hrolf free. Well, that's very nice of him. It is. Uh, and not only that, but he gives Hrolf some livestock and uh, a bit of property to get him started. See, now Hrut is very generous. Well, um, the land he gives over to Hrolf is right near the border between Hrut's property and... And Hoskulds. <laughs> yep, I, I I see. I know what. Yeah, he's, up he's setting up there. a little buffer there, isn't uh, he? Though, and uh, just as poor Hrolf is setting up his new home, it's brought to his attention that Hrut may have miscalculated and granted him just a bit of Hoskulds' land. Yeah, that's right. And uh, when Hoskuld finds out, he's not very pleased with uh, with this new settlement on his property. So he mm-hmm. rides over and he confronts Rolf and demands that he at least pay him for the property. But of course, Rolf doesn't really have much to offer beyond the livestock that he was given uh, by Hrut. So he runs back to Hrut and tells him the situation. Right. Now, I have to say that's actually not as bad as we might expect from Hoskold in his younger days. He's clearly mellowing a bit with age. Uh, 
The problem is Shrutt isn't really interested in playing ball here. Right? He spent a lifetime at this point putting up with his brother being unreasonable. Yeah. He says, Don't pay any attention to old Huskeld. Besides, it's not really clear which one of us actually owns that land. Now, if it's not clear to you by now, my dear listeners, Hrut seems to be using this freed slave to test his relationship with Hoskold and to once again call into question the fairness of the inheritance that he was given from their mother Thorgerd's property. I think that's reasonable. Uh, this is a much subtler version of the common motif we've seen in other sagas that has a dispute and send a slave to kill his enemy with the promise of freedom for a job well done. Yeah, yeah. In this case, Hrut frees the man in advance and then sends him to poke the bear indirectly, if you will. How do you uh, poke a bear indirectly, John? Uh, well, you sort of sidle up to it and say, hey, look over there, and then poke it and run. <laughs> that, no, that's uh, still no, directly. You're still directly well, poking the bear. You're just distracting I guess. Him. I guess. Uh, the, metaphorically, you settle a freed slave on the bear's property and see what it does. Okay, well, this this bear has a cub whose name is Thorlick, and mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't take long for the bear to send Thorlick to Hrolf's farm with a, with a band of hostile men. On a mission of peace and reconciliation, no doubt. No, no, that's not exactly uh, Thorlick's forte. No. Remember, both times that we're introduced to Thorlick in the saga, we're told that he's irascible and one hell of a warrior. Now, he doesn't beat around the bush either. Uh, Thorlick kills Hrolf right away, and then he claims all of the livestock and any movable wealth that Hrolf has acquired since being freed. Right, he just beats around the Hrolf. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's it's an unfortunate sequence of events for the poor slave Hrolf. Yeah, I mean, imagine Hrolf's joy when Hrut approached him with the idea of setting him free. You know, the problem is, and we've seen this before, the poor bastard had no idea just how cruel the upper crust of Icelandic society could be. Now... You'd like to think that Frut might have some legal recourse here, but he's soundly rejected by all the legal authorities that he consults when they learn that he, in fact, settled Rolf on Hoskold's property, and not right. by mistake. And, yeah, and as far as the law is concerned, you can see why. Rolf is a trespasser on Hoskold's land. Uh-huh. Thorlick's use of violence on behalf of his father, it may not have been sort of, you know, the, the nicest course, but it was absolutely justified legally. Yeah. So Hrut gets no compensation and no satisfaction. Instead, Thorlick keeps the property and the movable possessions they took from Hrolf, some of which belonged to Hrut originally, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and with that, he sets up a new farm on that borderland property between his father's farm and Hrut's, and he calls that farm Kamsnes. Which, I want to point out, is kind of confusing because well, Kamsnes is the name of the area that's it, it, the area, the region oh, sure. got its name from where where uh, Out the Deep Minded lost her comb. Mm-hmm. It's a little unclear to me reading this chapter with I think it was you know, I don't remember chapter twenty or whatever it was. Um, how Thorlack, if if this is the story of how Thorlack got his property at Comsness, or if if this is a new property that he's settling and calling it Comsness. So did he live in Comsness region? At a farm, and now he's got a, a new farm in the Comsness region, and he's calling it Comsness. I don't really understand. I don't know. Well, I think what's happening here is there was a place called Comsness, but then he starts his farm and finds a comb. No, I don't think that's lost I, by Alv. Oh no, no, no. Okay. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's what happened at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Uh, no. If we look back at chapter twenty, and we look at the end of chapter twenty-five, I'm guessing this is uh, the story of how he got a hold of this property, like this property. Yeah. Comsness. That- the author just chose to introduce him in chapter 20 as the owner of Comsness in the same way that we often see people introduce with their nicknames before yeah. they gain those nicknames, right? And yeah, that's then, true. 
And now in chapter 25, he's sort of circling back to tell the story of how he became the farmer at Kamsness. Yeah, well, either way, it's not a very clean line of storytelling, but I do agree. I think that's what's going on here. Um, it, it's as curly as a pig's behind. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's hard to say exactly when this all happens in the chronology of the saga story, but it's fair to say it's pretty late in Hoskold's life, and I think that's all that's important. Uh, and speaking of Hoskold's life? Oh, his his last hurrah. Yeah. Well, I think we can count uh, sticking it to Hrut as Hoskold's last hurrah, can't we? I mean, I think he would. Yeah. Uh, but we also have to say goodbye to him now. Well, okay, that's fine. But before we do, let me ask you this quick question. Why do you think the saga author has cast Hurt and Hoskold as a pair of feuding brothers? Because if you go back to Njal's saga, they practically trip over one another. They, they love each other so so dearly. Remember back in like chapter two of Njal's saga when Hoskold's helping to arrange a marriage for Hurt to the daughter of Mord Gigia? There we see Hoskold taking an active interest in his brother's life, urging him to get married, exclaiming that Hrut is, and I quote, a better man than I am. And he even gives Hrut a large enough property, including Kamsness, to mm-hmm. convince Morth that Hrut is a good match for his daughter. I mean, that's a, a stark contrast to the squabbling brothers that we see here in Lockstyle Saga. Well, I'm going to start by saying that um, you did originally pose that as a question to me, but... Although you then went ahead and answered it. Well, Uh, it's... Which is fine, which is fine. It's a rhetorical technique. I understand. Um, No, to be fair, they aren't always all that close in Njal Saga. Chapter 1 of Njal Saga has Hrut commenting on uh, the daughter's thief's eyes, on Holgerth's thief's eyes. Yeah, that's right. Everyone's Uh, thief's Which upsets Hoskold a great deal. He's so angry, we're told, that the two brothers didn't get along for a while. Yeah, that's true. But I, I was thinking about how the thematic choices or motifs the author chooses for the work. Uh, but I was thinking about how the thematic choices or motifs the author chooses for the work as a whole can influence how they shape their characters, right? So Lakstala Saga, similar to Ale Saga, seems to set brothers in opposition. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Hrut and Hoskold are the first major pair that we've seen, but there's also... Hoskold's sons, Thorlik and Bard, uh, along with Olaf. And there's Ingjald and Hall, the brothers from the South Air Islands from a few episodes back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, most brothers we've encountered so far are in opposition in some way. Exactly. So the question, I'm going to bring this back, right? What do we make of that? Because it's clearly not random. This is a theme in the text. Are we mm-hmm. meant to see one brother as representing some sort of ideal and the other as the opposite? It's an interesting theme to develop, and while I do think we should develop it a bit further, why don't we revisit it at the end of the episode? Ooh. I think there's a lot to say here. I don't want to derail the forward momentum that we're just finally starting to build. Mm-hmm. There's there's still a lot we've got to cover in this episode in terms of the summary. Okay, yeah, that makes sense as long as we do come back to it. But uh... I, I, I'll tell you what, we can make it the summons. Oh, okay, that sounds great. Now, uh, like we said a moment ago, Hoskold is quite old by this point of the story, and he eventually gets ill enough to realize that his days are numbered. So he sends for his kinsmen and his three sons. Well, what about Holgarth Longlegs and his other daughters? You know as well as I do that this saga doesn't care about Hoskold's daughters. He only really wants to speak to his sons, at least as far as the narrative is concerned, because I'm sure in the real-time world of this saga... He spent plenty of time with all of his children. 
Fair enough. Uh, I mean, it does kind of undercut some of the things we've been saying about this saga's interest in women's experiences. Right? Well, this is a question Wh- of property, da- though, so it's kind right. Of, you know. uh, but daughters who are, you know, very important in other sagas are kind of ignored here. But you're right, absolutely. This is a uh, a meeting to confer about property transference. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned he invited his sons, uh, and that does that does that include Olaf? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think so, but it's it's really not entirely clear to me when I read the text if Olaf mm-hmm. is is meant to be in the room initially. It's yeah. quite possible that he's there, but just not mentioned. Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and think that this whole conversation is happening with Olaf standing there. Uh, the point is that he wants to speak to Thorlake and Barth, but and I think you're going to like this, he wants to speak to them about their half-brother, Olaf. He mm-hmm. says... Both of you know how things stand. As my legitimate sons, you will both inherit all my property. But as you know, I have a third son, who you know is illegitimate. So I want to ask you two brothers to allow Orloff to be recognized, so that each of you will inherit a third of my property. Oh, they must love that. Yeah, that was my best uh, 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 Richard Harris as Dumbledore, by the way. Was it? Yes. You know, just like, <laughs> you're just knocking on death's door. It, that is Richard Harris as Dumbledore. You know, what I learned from Rich Little is that uh, the sign of a good impression is you have to tell everybody exactly what it was afterward. That's <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite, quite right. But I think uh, all those early Harry Potter fans are going to recognize it right away. They don't need me to explain it. They know. Um, now, as far as as far as the sons are concerned, uh, Barth and Thorlake are kind of divided on the subject. Barth's uh, all for it, right? And Thorlake, on the other hand, says, "I won't have Olaf acknowledged as heir. He's got plenty of wealth already, and you, father, have already given him so much for so long that I feel like you've already discriminated greatly between us brothers in his favor. So no, I won't give up my birthright." Now, Hoskold argues that he has a legal right to offer Olaf 12 ounces for his inheritance. Mm-hmm. If only, he says, in recognition of Olaf's high birth on his mother's side. 12 points to Olaf Dor. <laughs> I was thinking, as you said 12 ounces, I was thinking he's going to hand him a frosty beer. <laughs> uh, no, Thorlick can't deny his father this right, right? Uh, even if he doesn't like it. Uh, he can give He can give those 12 ounces. And this is why I think Olaf is in the room the whole time. Uh, Hoskold then takes his gifts from King Halkin, which is a weighty gold arm ring and a very expensive sword, and hands them over to Olaf. And this obviously enrages Thorlek, who feels like his father just tricked him out of the best items in Hoskold's inheritance. Yeah, but uh, it, it's all done, and Olaf's got the good stuff. Hoskold oh, yeah. dies not long after this, and the story moves on. Ah, at long last. Goodbye, Hoskold. Now, Thorlek, Barth, and Olaf build a nice burial mound for their father, but the saga notes, they don't put much of his wealth in there with him. <laughs> it's a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, it's thoughtful of them. Well, no, it's not. It's uh, <laughs> it's actually pretty cheap of them. <laughs> well, they're trying to preserve uh, the wealth and put it to right. use. Well, they're just trying to make sure nobody disturbs his slumber by, by right. raiding his grave later, right? right. It's, uh, they're just thinking of him. But after the burial, they do discuss a plan to honor their father properly by holding a grand feast. Olaf argues that because it's autumn, they should delay the feast to allow time for them to gather the necessary provisions and to give people time to travel from all over Iceland to come and celebrate Hoskold's life. 
they should wait and announce the feast at the All Thing the following summer. It's a good plan, if a little self-serving, but uh, what do we expect from a guy like Olaf Peacock? Why self-serving? In what way? Because of the delay? No, I mean, the delay is absolutely necessary for the kind of bash that they want to throw. The kind of lavish display of wealth that uh, someone like Olaf is planning. Right. So so self-serving in the sense that Olaf and his brothers, to some extent, can use this memorial feast for a bit of shameless self-promotion among Iceland's elite. Exactly. And so when summer arrives, they all make their way to the All Thing in their finest clothes. Right. And when the when the men are gathered around Law Rock, Olaf stands up and announces the feast to honor Hoskold. He says, I can promise that no man of influence will leave empty-handed. And we'd also like to invite you farmers and any others who care to come, whether beggars or their betters, to attend this fortnight's feast at Hoskoldstather, when ten weeks of summer remain. Everyone loves this. Olaf hits all the right notes, inviting the elite with promises of gifts and the little people with promises of food and entertainment. It's an ex... There will be bread and circuses. (laughs) It's an extremely bold invitation simply because the cost of such an event had to be staggering. But the brothers have agreed to pay for it in equal shares, and they've had almost a year to prepare this thing. So mm-hmm. it should be pretty good. Yeah, okay, they've had a year, but Bard and Thorlick didn't exactly agree to a memorial feast of quite no, this scale. No, they didn't. Uh, when Olaf returns to the booth to share the good news with them that he just invited the entire <laughs> right, island yeah. to the funeral... They're uh, they're a little pale and a little yeah. put off. Uh, they did not expect to have to feed most of Iceland yeah. at the party. Well, Olaf's going to Olaf, you know. Uh, and because yep. he's Olaf, he contributes more than his share to the cost and the preparations for the feast. It's all part of his plan. And when the time arrives, mm-hmm. the people start coming in droves. And the saga says, most of the prominent people who had promised to come attended the feast. There were so many people that most reports put the figure at over a thousand guests. It was the second largest feast ever held in Iceland, the largest being the memorial feast held by the Heltesons in memory of their father, which was attended by over 1,400 people. So it's quite oh, yes. the to-do. Uh, and it, it goes over very well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get any more detail than that. Um, I would really like to know. You know we did that episode not too long ago yeah, on, on it's drinking. a great opportunity uh, here. In Iceland. I would love to know what was served, what was drunk, right? what entertainment or games were on offer. The saga author skips over all yeah, of that. Sad but true. Whatever happened at Hoskold's Memorial Feast stayed at Hoskold's Memorial Feast. Yes, sir. Uh, now, we do know that everyone had a good time and all the important guests left with nice parting gifts as Olaf had promised. Presumably the less important guests got to file past while Olaf handed out packages to all of well, his rich friends. Well, they left with bellies full and hearts gladdened. There you go. I think that's more than enough. There you, there you go. They're gladdened yes. hearts. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the you know the gift of not having to carry all those heavy Swift, gifts I, What would I do with a sword? I'm a farmer. Right. Right. Uh, maybe a nice pair of shoes to get <laughs> me right. home. Uh, now, while the three brothers all receive praise and credit for the lavish feast and gifts. Olaf, of course, is singled out as the mastermind. as I've been suggesting, is all part of the plan. Olaf not only takes the lead in planning this whole thing, announcing it, hosting the feast, he also pays an equal share of the cost, if not more, with his brothers. So 
If there was ever any doubt in anyone's mind on Olaf's status as Hoskold's son and true heir, well, this feast leaves little doubt. So what you're suggesting is that Olaf is wandering around at this uh, this feast and saying, you know, um, we spared no expense. I mean, of course, I uh, paid a little bit more than my brothers, but we spared That's no right, expense yeah. for this By event. By the way, have you... All three of us, although me more yeah, than them. Right. Yeah. Have you seen my uh, parade yeah, I, of uh, livestock? It uh, stretches miles, <laughs> miles, I tell you. I'm working on a five-mile parade right. for next year. Uh, now, you would think that this whole thing might rub Thorlick the wrong way, but Olaf is also paying attention and working that angle. Right? Near the end of the party, he approaches Thorlick and does his best to smooth over any resentments that may linger between them. He says, I wish we could do better in the future, brother. I would like to make it up to you by fostering your son, Boli. As you know, he who raises the child of another is always considered the lesser of the yes. two. So, well, this is a very public declaration of affection, but also of Olaf's place in the hierarchy of the family. It's a good move on mm-hmm. Olaf's part, and it pleases Thorlek. Right. And of course, the only reason that any of us know this whole the lesser of the two thing is because it was already established with yeah. Thor Godi in the previous generation. Right. This is a this is a saga author who knows what he's about. Uh, now, uh, at this point, Bolly, uh, the young son of Thorlik, moves from his father's house. Right, goes home from the feast with his uncle, and any tension between Thorlik and Olaf is resolved for now. And all of Iceland now recognizes what a great man Olaf Peacock, son of Hoskuld and Melkorka, the Irish princess, what a great man he truly is. And, of course, with uh, throwing such a massive party, it's a heck of a last hurrah for Hoskold. Part 15. Lakstala Saga, The Next Generation. All right, John. You know how saga authors like to interrupt the ongoing story to introduce new characters? Yep. Well, that's where we're at when we hit chapter 28. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I feel like chapters twenty-eight to thirty-one are kind of a uh, kind of a liminal space for the saga, where the author's Ooh. inserting stories and information that don't quite fit into the chronology of the saga neatly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, whatever the case, the saga pauses here to acknowledge the expanding families of our main characters. Now, we already know that Olaf and uh, Thorgerd have a daughter named Thorid, and they've been fostering Boldy, the son of Olaf's brother Thorlik. Right, and Thorid will feature heavily in this next section, and. Even if we haven't drawn much attention to Bolly yet, uh, keep him in mind. He's he's going to become a major player in this saga. And speaking of major players, Orloff and Thorgerth have more children. The first and most important for this saga is their son, Kjartan. Uh, he's named for his grandfather, Murkjartan of Ireland. Right. It's a, you know, they want to make sure that everybody remembers that there's a bit of royal blood flowing through the veins of this family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kjartan is about the same age as Boli, and so they grow up together at Hjartholt. And according to the saga, Kjartan is the most handsome man in Iceland. Yeah, and not just in Iceland at the time he lived. It says he was the most handsome man ever born in Iceland. Mm, yes, and uh, we are given a rather lengthy description of him, just to give us a sense of what it means to be the handsomest man in all of Iceland's history. It says, He had a broad face and regular features, the most beautiful eyes and a fair complexion. His hair was thick and shiny as silk, and it fell in waves. He was a big, strong man, much like his grandfather, Eil or Thorolf, 
No man cut a better figure than Carton, and people were always struck by his appearance when they saw him. He was a better fighter than most, skilled with his hands, and a, a top swimmer. And though he was superior to other men in all skills, he was the humblest of men, and so popular that every child loved him. He also had a generous and cheerful disposition. Yeah, that's a lot. I think it's the longest description we've seen of a character in the sagas. I might be wrong, but it's it's long. It's it's up there with Gunnar Hamundersen's initial description. Yes, exactly. And it, I, similar in many I ways. I was thinking right? the same that, thing. Uh, and throwing in that top swimmer thing is also part of it, right? That that um, you know that's an unusual characteristic for an Icelandic man in the 10th century. Yeah. And so it's it's always a worthy note when when they have that ability. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know when you put a, a description like this in, whether it's for Gunnar or now for Kjartan, the idea is to draw the reader's attention, right? It announces Kjartan's arrival in the saga. Yeah. Right? It's uh, you're grabbing the reader by the lapels, like, hey, this guy's going to be important. Right, and and this is also the moment that Boley gets his description, linking him to Kjartan <laughs> in the mind of the reader. That's important. Yeah, uh, Boley grows into a large man. Uh, <laughs> the poor guy. The saga says he was best at all skills and other accomplishments after Kjartan, of course. Of course, right. <laughs> so his uh, description and accolades are correspondingly a little bit less vivid, but the list is still lengthy. Uh, he's strong. He's handsome, he's a good fighter, he's got excellent manners, and he likes to wear fine clothes. Yeah, so the point of all of this is that the saga wants us to recognize Kjartan and Boli as foster brothers, as excellent and handsome men, and as good friends. They're a pair. That's right. Uh, but, uh, like you said, this is just the introduction to the characters. They aren't quite ready to step into the spotlight just yet, right? They're 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 still young. Mm-hmm. As we've seen in so many of these sagas, eventual protagonists and players get introduced several chapters ahead of time, right? So we can sort of anticipate their arrival. Uh, in this case, we're meeting the next generation as the previous generation begins settling down and establishing themselves. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on here. Um, now, we, we've skipped over Olaf and Thorgeir's other children, but they are mentioned mm-hmm. here as well. In addition to Thorid, Boli, and uh, and Kjartan, there's Steinthor, Haldor, Helgi, and Hoskult. Uh, they also have daughters, but only two more are mentioned here. Uh, that's Bergthora and Thorbjörg. Right, and the, the sons will play a role in this saga, but these daughters are only referenced for the purposes of establishing family connections, I think. Yeah. Um, when the saga first introduces these extra two daughters, we might not recognize them. But a few chapters on, we find out that Thorbjörg is a good-looking, heavy-set woman known as Thorbjörg the Stout. Oh, see, I remember that name. We've seen mm-hmm. Thorbjörg the Stout a few times, right? Where, where do I remember her from, John? Now, if I I know you know, but if you're asking, you clearly <laughs> don't remember her. She's the savior of Greta Asmundersen in one of the ah, interpolations of yeah. Fosbrotta Saga and in Greta Saga as well. That's right. See, I know from the paragraph about her in Laxdale Saga that she is the wife of Verbon the Slender, mm-hmm. one of the more powerful Godar in Erbiki Saga. Uh, I just couldn't recall where we ran into her as an active player because she's not in I mean, Arabic Saga. Right. I mean, you're probably thinking of Greta's saga, right? This, uh, she saves Greta from the farmers who've captured him, from her farmers who've captured him. Yeah. Uh, they they plan to hang him, uh, but she gets him to swear an oath that he will no, do no harm in their district anymore if she lets him go. Mm, see, there you go. That's, that, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah. 
So she's interesting because in both Greta's saga and Frostbrother saga, she's said to hold Veriman's authority while he is away. Right. Uh, yeah. And by the way, there's a pretty strong implication that she holds Vermin's authority even when he's at home. Right. Well, Vermin uh, is rather slender and she's right. stout. Well, not just slender, but also, uh, yeah, inconsequential, I think is the nicest way to put it. <laughs> uh, this is a – but it, uh, Thorberg is a rare instance of a woman wielding actual, like, real political power in an otherwise mm-hmm. male-dominated sphere. That's pretty cool stuff. But uh, like you said, that's another saga. Or another sagas or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, since we are telling the story of these two daughters of Olaf Peacock, we should also acknowledge that Bergthora also marries a Gothi, Thorhall Mm -hmm. Olesen from the Westfjords. That's not terribly important for what the author is trying to do here, though. Uh, Far Mm -hmm. more important for Bergthora is that she is the mother of a boy named Kjartan, who is the father of Smith Sturla, who fostered Thord Gilson, who was the father of Sturla of Hlam. And for listeners who are familiar with the late 12th and early 13th century Icelandic history, you know that Sturla is kind of a big deal. And for those of you who don't know that, which I assume is most of you and who can blame you, uh, Sturla Avam is the father of the Sturlung clan, uh, the figures that dominate 13th century Icelandic politics. So what we have here is our first direct connection from Olaf Peacock to the infamous Snorri Sturluson. Through Fosterage, but yes. Yeah. Okay. I think that's all the kids of Olaf Peacock and Thorgard that we need to highlight. Uh, You ready to get back to the story itself? Uh, Well, not not quite. There's a fun little vignette in this chapter about baby Halder Olofsson that I'd like to include. Uh, If only because it's kind of an endearing look at the similarities between youth and old age. It is, yes. And it's a good opportunity to include a poem, finally, which we haven't had much of in this text. I know. Yeah, I I fully intended for us to include that. Go ahead. Uh, Well, it'll be quick. Uh, This little episode might sound familiar to some of our listeners, at least those who have a good memory, because it begins with a man from Sauber named Bersi the Dueler. Mm -hmm. You might remember him from Cormac's saga, Way back when, uh, Bercy was the guy who married Steingerth right out from under Cormac. Yeah, I blame Narfi for that mess. Narfi. Yes. So uh, what's Bercy the Dueler doing in Lockstyle Saga? Well, he's the nephew of Hoskold, for one thing. Uh, okay. So he's actually a close family relative. Uh, but other than that, he's honestly, he's really just here to excuse the inclusion of a funny little poem. Which, you know, I'm happy to revisit here since it's uh, delivered in the right context. So, uh, right context, you said, to remind me how it was wrong in Cormac's saga. Well, hold on. Let me set up the situation. Bercy is one of Olaf Peacock's thingmen, uh, which we see developed a little bit in Cormac's saga. One day, Bercy arrives at Hjallerholt with an offer to foster Olaf's son, Haldor, which Olaf accepts. Yeah, and uh, Haldor is said to be about a year old at the time, so he's, he's mm-hmm. quite young. Right, and Bercy is quite old at this time. Uh, so one fine summer day when all the household is out in the hayfields, Bercy is at home recovering from an illness and watching little Haldor. And at some point, Haldor's cradle tips over and Haldor rolls out onto his back. Bercy struggles to get up and finds that he can't. So with no way to help the boy, instead he entertains him by composing a funny little verse about the situation. Both of us lie flat on our backs, Haldor and I, helpless and frail. Old age does this to me, and youth to you. You've got hope of better, 
But I, none at all. Mm. Yeah, I remember that poem from Cormac's saga. It's a good one. Mm. Uh, now, as William Ian e. Miller notes in his book, Losing It, the delightful simplicity of Bersi's verse means more in the Norse world, where its simplicity defies expectation. This poem's a nice little lament. It's a humorous complaint about old age. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, one that I can appreciate more the older I get. Well, John, you are in your 40s, so let's not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> oh, is it is it not October yet? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still in my 40s for another couple of months. Yeah. Although I, I often feel like I'm in my 60s, Andy. Well, you know, 60s, the new 40, so live it up, Johnny. I'm just so tired. So very, very tired. <laughs> here I am on my back. <laughs> oh, well. Could like a be? turtle in the sun. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe you're so tired because of the effort of raising young children and uh, now three dogs. Or or maybe <laughs> maybe the intensive home improvement projects you've taken on during your sabbatical. Could it be? I mean, you're still ahead of me by one kid. So I feel like, uh, you know, like you have a reason to be tired as well. Uh, My kids yeah, are old I know that now. all might have something to do with it. Okay. Well, real quick, uh, remind me how this poem was out of context. You said it was out of context in Cormac's saga mm-hmm. because it feels really out of context in this saga. <laughs> Bercy has nothing to do with the plot of Laxdala's saga. He's literally only on screen for this one moment in the middle of a chapter about Olaf's children. He has nothing else to do. Uh, you and I are such different generations. <laughs> on screen, not on stage. Uh-huh. Uh, well, at least it's a chapter about Olaf's children, right? That's that's something. It opens the door just a crack to to cram the story in with some kind of narrative relevance. Uh, in Cormac's saga, you might remember, we, we do have Bersi arriving begrudgingly at old age. Uh, he's been beaten in duels. He's been injured and humiliated. And by the time he takes on fostering Haldor, he's kind of just a grumpy old man. Mm. Speaking of humiliated, doesn't he get uh, one of his buttocks lopped off or at least cut very badly in one of the duels? Uh, yeah, I think he does. Yeah, so all of all, all of that sounds appropriate for the tone of the poem complaining about being old and unable to move. So mm-hmm. what's the problem there? Well, the problem is that it's inserted into a conversation Bercy has with Haldor. Okay. Uh, so in Cormac's saga, not only is Haldor old enough to have a chat with his foster father about old age and the trouble Vali's been causing, Haldor's old enough to get involved in the feud and kill Vali. Okay. I believe the saga says he was 12 at the time. All right, so uh, while you were talking, I grabbed my copy of the Saga of the Warrior Poets, uh, and mm-hmm. I found the page with the poem. Let me uh, just read to you what I wrote in the margin next to it. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, from Laxdala Saga, why is Haldor a 12-year-old here? This verse doesn't work. <laughs> Great minds. Uh, yeah. no, there you go. Uh, but but at least it, it kind of works in Lockstall Saga as uh, as a sort of a part of you know, the story about Olaf's children. So there All you right. go. There you go. Uh, let's get back to Olaf now. Part 16. Timber! Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, yes. Did you say Timber? No, I said timber. Yeah. Um, is that how they say it in Queens when they're cutting down the trees? Because that's <laughs> well, not sorry. how they say it. I defer to your vast experience of the t- the, the lumber yards of, uh, where'd you grow up, Florida? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I started out in Ohio where uh, there are a lot of oh, trees. <laughs> not a lot I'm of sorry. lumberjacks. I'm sorry. Is your argument there were a lot of trees? <laughs> 
This is well, but I did grow up watching cartoons, and they definitely don't say whatever you just said. They say timber. You know, like uh, you gotta uh-huh. extend the whole thing because uh, you gotta listeners, warn someone. Listeners, that the tree's uh, falling. How do you say timber? Um, feel free to let us know or to not let us know because it's utterly irrelevant. <laughs> uh, but we're going to let the kid from Ohio and the kid from Queens uh, let this lie because neither one of us knows what the heck we're talking about. <laughs> well, I do because I watch cartoons and I know exactly oh, how they boy. say timber. Wow. Okay. All right. All right. Sure. So um, I I understand your title. Yeah. I see what you're doing Good. because Olaf needs Good. lumber for... He needs timber, Andy. He needs he- timber. <laughs> I don't. I really don't like the way you say that. It, <laughs> it's throwing me off completely. So Olaf needs some timber for That's a right. pretty large scale and expensive project that he's got in mind. Mm-hmm. The only problem is that Iceland simply doesn't have that kind of timber that Olaf needs for the project. Uh-huh. And so, like his father before him a few episodes back, Olaf set sail for Norway on a home improvement trip. It's a narrowly missing uh, IKEA, which uh, just right. just aim for Sweden. It's yeah. right there. Well, it would uh, take so long to put together. I right? Mean, no, that's that's a fair point. <laughs> and uh, he's, this is a rush job. You know, he's yeah, got to get it done no. quick. Uh, so he lands in Norway in Hordaland near the property of a man called Girman Thunder, uh, a wealthy man with some influence and a reputation for being a great Viking. He's one of those retired Vikings who, you know, settled down to serve as a follower of a wealthy aristocrat. In this case, it's Earl Halkin Sigurdsson, uh, who essentially ruled Norway for most of the late 10th century. Yeah, now, Germund is also known as a troublemaker, so keep that in mind for a little bit later. For now, just know that Germund welcomes Olaf and his crew into the district for the winter. He supports them and provides them with food and shelter and entertainment. It's a great time. Uh Uh-huh, and when spring comes... Olaf explains he's in Norway to secure a load of the best building timber available. Now, which, of course, leads us to wonder what exactly they did for small talk for the first three or four months before he got around to mentioning his reason for being there. Yeah, so it's, it's a long time to keep it close to the vest that you're there to buy trees. Yeah. So uh, German says that Earl Haukan has the best forest around, and he assures Olaf that a man of his outstanding reputation will be well-received at court, mm-hmm. which... I think, gets to the heart of what this section is really about. I mean, what the section's really about is uh, getting quality lumber at reasonable prices, Andy. <laughs> That's true. But we'll, uh, right. we'll circle back to your point. <laughs> okay. Uh, when Olaf arrives at Halkin's court to request permission to cut the timber he needs, Earl Halkin announces proudly, It's an honor for me to fill your ship with wood from my forest, Olaf. It's not every day that we receive guests like you from Iceland. And then he gives Olaf an axe inlaid with gold, presumably for felling trees, and the promise of his friendship. You're going to take the axe he's given you that's inlaid with gold and you're going to cut trees down with it? I mean, you could cut off the heads of a couple of oxen with it, but I've seen that happen (laughs) before. It doesn't end well. So, all right. So here's what I'm thinking. All of this is pretty consistent with the saga author's agenda, or at least his interests so far. Or her interests, depending on who wrote it. Right. Um, look at let's look at Earl Hauken's words again. That's Earl Hauken, the mm-hmm. de facto ruler of Norway. He says it's yeah. an honor for him to fill Olaf's ship with expensive timber. It's his honor. Why? <laughs> and what does he mean by it's not every day that we receive guests like you from Iceland? Um, 
I'm going to assume it means that he's used to seeing uh, filthy farmers and backwater hosers coming in from the hinterlands. Hosers. Isn't that the standard Norwegian attitude toward Icelanders in the sagas? Um, sure. But this trip to fetch lumber, it's it's yet another excuse for the author to highlight Olaf's nobility, right? Mm-hmm. Not only is he the son of Hoskold and the grandson of an Irish king, he's also recognized here by Norwegian royalty as a worthy member of the aristocracy. He's deserving of the status that he holds in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And he's deserving of the authority that he wields because he is an aristocrat. Right. And we are straining credulity at this point in the saga, right? The idea that yeah. a Norwegian king would be, or a Norwegian earl, excuse me, would be quite this fawning over <laughs> right, some yes. Icelandic oh, kid please. who shows up and asks for trees. Let me uh, give you some wood. Right, right. Oh, allow me to fill your your ship with my wood, sir. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. you know, Olaf gets off the ship and, and, and Garamund's like, oh, I've heard of you. Of, right. You're the famous sure Olaf Peacock. And yeah. and then Ger- and then uh, the, the Earl is, is doing the same kind of thing. It's yeah. it's pretty. Now, this silly. saga is, is heavily invested in establishing the idea of an Icelandic aristocracy. Right. We've seen this throughout. Um, and that, it doesn't always mean, by the way, that the Norwegian aristocracy doesn't look down on them. Uh, but it doesn't happen here. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it's. We might see the interest in noble lineage, which we saw starting with Out the Deep Minded and all those marriages she arranged, right? Securing the family status across Northern Europe. Um, or we can look at her descendants here, love of fine clothes and lavish displays of wealth and huge buildings. What we're seeing is a line of people who are meant to be identified as being, you know, different from the average Icelander. Uh, the, you know, the Bjorn Lunchpail. Uh <laughs> Who wanders around Iceland, uh, you know, Bjorn Driftwood, different in ways that we're meant to admire. Yes, definitely, and and all of that runs quite contrary to the typical view of Icelanders in the sagas that positions them as proud and capable and independent people living in a commonwealth ruled by the law of the people. That's not to say that there isn't a fascination with Scandinavian royalty in the rest of the sagas, but there's, I think there's a really clear line of delineation between the Icelander and his supposed betters back in Norway and Denmark in most of the sagas that we've read. That's not really the case here in Laxdaga mm-hmm. saga, at least not so far. Um, this, is, this one is a really marked contrast from what we've seen in Ale saga. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on it too much. We're not even halfway through the saga. I'm just suggesting this is one of those things that we want to keep an eye on and see where it goes. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know, we might speculate about the difference between writing a saga in the decades before capitulation in Norway and yeah. the decades after it. Uh, but that's a that's a conversation we can revisit at the at the end, maybe in the last episode or in the judgment section even. Yeah, if we remember to. Uh, who knows when that would be. But uh, yeah, only the Norns, Andy, only the Norns know. Uh, now. Olaf is quite pleased with the load of timber loaded onto his ship, but that's not all that Olaf finds loaded into the ship. He arrives to find that Gehrman Thunder is also on board, and he's packed all of his movable property on there as well. Which is a lot of property. It's a lot of property, and Olaf is not pleased, to say the least. He says, You'd not be doing any traveling aboard my ship if I'd known of your plans earlier. Especially since I suspect it would be better if some people in Iceland never laid eyes on you. But, since you're here, I can hardly run you off like some stray dog. Yeah, And so, Gerbun rides home to Iceland with Olaf mm-hmm. and settles down for a time at his home in Hjartholt. Yeah, um, 
And at this point, the saga reveals exactly what Olaf had been planning for all that timber. I'm going to just read directly from the saga for a second. That summer, Olaf had a fire hall built at Helderholt, which was larger and grander than men had ever seen before. On the wood of the gables and the rafters, ornamental tails were carved. It was so well crafted that it was thought more ornamental without the tapestries than with them. So this is yet another display of Olaf's immense wealth mm-hmm. and a symbol of his status. Yes. Similar, but much bigger than what his father did after his trip to Norway a few episodes back. Mm-hmm. And I love that we get this description here. I'd like to think that this great hall and that great memorial feast and all these little details of Olaf's expensive displays, that they're all part of medieval Iceland's cultural memory and preserved here. Now, did you actually get around to looking up uh, to see if they've excavated at Hjalderholt? Uh, any evidence of a large hall? Uh, maybe something on the scale of Hrisbrú or Stongholz? I did look, but I did not have much luck. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the problem is that you've got to, you know, you've got to, you got to look in databases and read things in in uh, other languages, mm-hmm. Icelandic, Danish, um, maybe German. Um, and I, I haven't looked that far. But uh, I'll check with our pal Kauri again since he's got the inside track. Or mm-hmm. we could contact Jesse Bayok because I'm sure he would have sure. a sense of it after working on similar projects for so long. But my guess is that if there was something there, there would be a report or two that would be a lot easier to find than what I you know, didn't find. Uh, so <laughs> this description, it, it's attracted a lot of attention by scholars and students of medieval Icelandic culture for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And this is a known location, so it shouldn't be that difficult to determine if a building on that scale once stood there, if it did. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, personally, I think it would be disappointing if there wasn't something there. I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, I think. I like to think of this hall as a fixture, something that would have been seen at Hjallerholt from the late 10th and 11th centuries, maybe. Mm-hmm. I understand the hall would eventually fall apart and be replaced, and the wood would be repurposed for other projects as time goes on. But it's fun to imagine what it might have been like. And it'd be nice if they could at least find like a footprint or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, at the very least, I think we can applaud the author for capturing our imaginations like this and exciting our sense of what might have been, even mm-hmm. if it never was. I'll say it again. I don't really trust this author as a historian, which I'm going to be fair here. Not a shock, given the obvious influences <laughs> of the romance tradition on this saga. It's not meant to be history. Right. Well, And what he's really describing is, you know, a... Uh, uh, a hole covered in fancy graffiti. Uh, so I guess maybe it isn't as outlandish as we're making it's it sound. A it hole covered be... in beautiful carvings. Right. Fancy graffiti. Okay. Um, if that's what I, I don't know if you're familiar are. with the work of Banksy or Keith Haring, but, you know, uh, graffiti can be quite fancy. It can, uh, but it's not carvings in wood. Those fair? are stencils. Fair? Uh, stencils? Stencils, sir? <laughs> don't paint Keith Haring with Banksy's brush. Thank you very much. Well, you uh, say you mentioned Banksy, so that's where I'm. But uh, speaking of romance, uh, <laughs> oh, I can were we talking about us romance? Back to what we said, uh, <laughs> Germund, our old friend German Thunder, uh, who's helped himself to a place in Olaf's ship and now in Olaf's home, is sweet on Olaf's daughter Thurid. This guy, he doesn't let uh, up. Yeah, he's a. It's it's a it's a what about Bob situation. Uh, He's not in Iceland for very long before he's approaching Olaf with a proposal. Um, out of curiosity, what's the connection to What About Bob? Oh, that he involves himself in his in the guy's life and just kind of becomes oh, okay. this annoying figure that he can't get rid of. 
I got you. Okay, yes, that's true. That, that works. Uh, Olaf uh, doesn't exactly see this as a great match. He knows Garman too well by now to want to have him as a son-in-law, and I think he's well, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Garman, unsurprisingly, given what we've seen so far, doesn't take no for an answer. He's rejected by Olaf, but then he approaches Thorgerd uh, and appro- offers her money. She supports the proposal. That's a dirty trick. Well, Thorgerth looks at the large sum being offered and quickly promises to help, which she does. Come on, Thorgerth. Where's your your father's ale? It's not like you're hurting for cash. I know. Well, you know, but, you know, like ale, she sees uh, the glint of gold and she's thinking. Yep, that's that. She comes by it honestly. Yeah, it's it's probably my gold. I think that should be in my pocket. Yeah. So before long, Germund and Thorgerd are married. Their wedding's held in the great hall that's built by Olaf and probably his carpenters and maybe some other helpers and carvers. Graffiti uh, The saga tells us, yes. Now, the saga tells us that among the many, many people who attended this wedding was a poet named Ulf Ugesen. And Ulf was so inspired by the tales carved on the wood, the graffiti, if you will, <laughs> the fancy graffiti, um, that he composed a poem called Hustraupa. Everyone at the wedding was impressed. They were treated well by their host. It's another great Olaf Peacock party. It's good stuff. I mean, he's a man who knows how to throw a shindig. Yes, uh, he does. Now, that poem, Hustrapa, by uh, Ulf Ugesen, is a significant source of Old Norse mythology, actually. Uh, the infamous Snorri Sörlsen uh, claims that he's using it as a source in the Skaldskapermal section of the Prosetta. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually pick up your own copy and flip back to the index and you'll find a lot of entries under the name Ulf Ugesen. And each entry is an excerpt from the poem, which was supposedly composed at this wedding of Girman and Thurid. Yeah. Now, the excerpts provide a range of quick glimpses into some familiar moments from Norse mythology, including references to Thor's fishing trip and the death of Baldr. Now, of course, Snorri never really explains why he's chosen to cite Ulf so frequently. He provides no background on the poet or the composition of the poem. It's just one of the primary sources that he seems to be using mm-hmm. for the Skaldskapper Mall. So it's impossible to verify the Luxtyler saga author's claim that it was inspired by Olaf Peacock's Hall. But based on no evidence whatsoever, I like to think that it was simply because it's nice to think that. I hope that's all right with you. I mean, look, you can do whatever you want to do. In this case, however, I'm actually right there with you. Mm, and as long as we're, as long as we're uh, edging out on this uh, very thin branch... I'm going to take our flight of fancy one step further. What if, and this is pretty far out, but what if Thord Menace was involved in the construction of the hall? Oh, well, if we're on flights of fancy, I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm going to go with you. Hello. And uh, you know what, John? You're not the first one to suggest that. I'm not? No. no. Uh, While researching this hall... I ran into a dissertation by Eric Scheide from uh, UC Berkeley back in 2015 called huh. Crafting Words and Wood, Myth, Carving, and Hustrapa. Really? I read through quite a bit of it yesterday, and I, I sent you a copy. Um, he, he speculates that Thord Menace would have had the reputation and the skill to carve the hall in the time frame suggested in the saga. <laughs> and Thord Menace would have been in his, I think he... he calculates that he would have been in his 40s uh, mm-hmm. at that time and still alive. Um, 
So, and uh, Scheide has, also has a, a pretty interesting discussion of Olaf's trip to Norway, where he went, what he might have seen on his travels to inspire his concept of what a grand hall of a true Scandinavian aristocrat might look like. All right, I'm going to have to look at this. Uh, you sent yeah. this to me? I did. Excellent. Uh, yeah, no, I I mean, I can see how Thord Menace might find time to carve a hole in between dodging uh, attempted assassinations by small groups of armed men. Uh, but <laughs> well, remember, he's older. This is after that. Right. Well, uh, you know, uh, yeah. now the saga doesn't say anything about it, but uh, Jarl Hauken, uh, who we met back in Norway, uh, was a follower of the old gods. Yeah. It would make sense if his halls and temples as well would have featured carvings from Norse mythology. Right. So, uh, and so uh, if Olaf is imitating the aristocracy of Norway, right, it makes yeah. sense that he would be reflecting that style. It's a very cool yeah. idea. It is. So, um, all right. Olaf's got a great hall and a happy family, more or less. And Thurid's about to start a new life with Germund. Things are going great. Well, not exactly. No. Um, we've got one more section to cover. And uh, let's see where this thurid german relationship ends up. Part 17. Breaking up is hard to do. So, as the title there implies, Thorid and Germund do not live happily ever after. Yeah, Olaf was, you know, he was quite right about not trusting Germund. After about three years, Germund suddenly declares he intends to leave Iceland. That doesn't sound so bad. I'm sure Thorid and their daughter Groa will love Norway, right? I mean, no, no, it's a no, beautiful no, place. No, no, First of all, we should mention they do have a daughter named Groa. But Girman doesn't plan to take them. He's uh-huh. going to leave them alone in Iceland for an unknown length of time with no obvious means of support. Hmm. Uh, and when nice. Thorid runs home to tell her father, Olaf turns to his wife Thorgerth and says, Well, 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 Thorgerth. Is your German as generous now as he was in that autumn when he asked for your daughter's hand? He just couldn't help himself. I know. And you know what? I don't blame him. It's a terrible situation that could easily have been avoided. Well, I mean, it, Olaf does step in. He does his best to resolve the conflict between German and Thurid, noting that Groa, who's still an infant, is too young to travel anyway. So, yeah. Uh, and he no doubt promises to provide for his daughter and granddaughter while German is away. I mean, it's it's a fair solution, I guess. Groa is too young for the journey. No, she and, is, absolutely. You know, uh, and by the way, the fact that Olaf already has a granddaughter, I mean, this saga is just, the years are zipping by. Oh yeah, three uh, years. And uh, so Olaf uh, moves to sweeten the deal by presenting German with his very own merchant ship. See, that's pretty generous right there. Yeah, I mean, he really wants this guy to go away. <laughs> uh, the ship is completely outfitted and ready to go. See, that's going overboard. Ah, mm-hmm. ah, ah. Well done, Andy. I feel nothing but regret. Well, you get used to it. Uh, German is pleased with the gift, and he sets sail shortly after from the mouth of the Salmon River. Unfortunately for German, the wind dies down almost immediately, and they have to lay anchor at Oxney. Yeah, that's not very far at all. Yeah. Uh, to give you a sense of it, they are still east of Helgefell near modern-day Stukisholmer. And they've <laughs> traveled roughly 40 to 45 kilometers. Not very far at all. It's not an auspicious start to the trip for Germund. Uh, and no. while he's setting sail, Olaf is out overseeing the collection of driftwood on the beaches he owns. Because apparently that's his hobby. 
Yes. Uh, well, he needs to be out of out of the house for a little bit, right? To uh, make because, the rest, the next part work. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he gives Thurid just enough time to sneak out of the house with Groa and a group of eight servants. Yeah, she's got a cunning plan, doesn't she? She does, and I know people were worrying that we might get through an entire episode without referencing Black Adder, but this uh, cunning plan might not be what everyone's thinking. Uh, that evening, Thurid takes a ferry owned by her father and sails out to Oxney. And when they get there, she has the servants put the smaller ship's boat into the water. Accompanied by two servants and with her daughter in her arms, Thurid now rows across the current to catch up with German's ship. And as they approach, she opens up the storage chest in the bow and pulls out an auger. See, Thurid's definitely got a bit of Ale Scotley Grimson in her. Oh, yes, she does. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking that she plans to sink the merchant ship that Olaf gave to her husband. That's... That's small potatoes. That's not the case. Instead, she instructs one of the servants who's with her to use that auger to bore holes in the ship's boat on German's vessel while she goes on board. You see, there's a fine line between a cunning plan and a dastardly plan. Right. Yeah. Uh, Now, you may be wondering why Thurid's made the effort to bring this infant child with her on this little trip. Well, I, I suppose one might assume that she cares so deeply for it that she doesn't want to be away from little Groa for too long. It's, it is an infant. Uh, one might also assume that she intends to stow away on her husband's ship with the infant child and, and surprise him when they get to Norway. Uh, that at least seems the direction we've been led by the narrative so far. Right. No, one, one might assume that, uh, but one would be very, very wrong. Uh, yes, one as would. The, as the holes in the ship's boat might suggest. Uh <laughs> Thurid does board German's ship, uh, and by this time, everyone is sleeping as they wait for the wind to pick up again. Uh, Thurid creeps over to where German is sleeping and finds his sword, and he loves the sword. It's called Legbiter, uh, and he never lets it out of his sight. Uh, And it's hanging right by where he sleeps because he wants to have it with him all the time. She slips the baby into German's leather sleeping bag, snatches the sword, and runs back to her boat. What a thing to do. She is clearly not the doting mother that we hoped she might be. No, 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 no. As we said, she's got all the petty vengefulness of her grandfather Ale in her. And of course, as soon as baby Groa realizes that her mother is gone, she starts crying. Mm-hmm. German wakes up, immediately recognizes his daughter, and realizes that he's got, you know, one fewer swords and one more daughters than he had when he went to sleep. <laughs> uh, he starts looking around for his sword. He finds it missing. And so he, at that point, figures out that Thurid is nearby. You'd think the baby in his arms would be enough. Yeah. Uh, hoping to catch her, he runs up on deck. But he sees Thurid and her companions frantically rowing away. <laughs> <laughs> he calls for his men to launch the ship's boat and get after them. Which they do, but... <laughs> the, the ship's boat has holes in it. Yeah. So they can't go catch her. Yeah. Well played, Thurid. Well played. Now, now we understand what the whole ship's boat thing was about. Yes, yes. It's very complicated, <laughs> but there you go. It all, it all comes out. Uh, yes, it does. Now, obviously, German is furious. He demands that Thurid come back at once and return Legbiter. Uh, he tells her to take her daughter and whatever wealth she wants... But Thurid just laughs. Do you mind the loss of your sword so much? I'd have to lose a great deal of money before I minded it as much as the loss of that sword, woman. Then you'll never have it. You've treated me dishonorably in more ways than one. 
This will be the last you'll ever see of me, Garamond. This puts Garamond in a real fit. So realizing that he won't be getting Legbiter back, he shouts, Then I lay a curse upon that sword. It will be the death of that man in your family who will most be missed and least deserves it. Now, Thurid doesn't seem to care. Uh, she returns to Hotherholt with the sword and minus one infant child. And I have to say, yes. this whole conversation, it's worth noting that both parents are really ups- are really angry about where the sword ends up, and nobody's yeah. even mentioning the baby. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, Olaf is obviously angry with his daughter, but he can't really do anything about it. No, he can't. Now, Germund does set sail the following morning, and the trip goes pretty well at first. At first? Unfortunately, the ship runs aground as they approach Stauth in Norway, and everyone aboard is drowned. Oh. It is a sad ending to the story of Germund, and a tragically short life for little Groa. Well, this suddenly took a turn. I mean, we've been Didn't screwing it? around here, but that's that's quite sad. It's, it's, it's really it's awful. It's really a shame that she had to be brought into this. It is. Um, and, and, you know, the saga author doesn't mention, you know, Groa died in the... Right. Groa was definitely on board. There's yep. no way she wasn't. Yep. So she goes down with the ship. It's it's very sad. Um, but tell me, John, in terms yep. of our narrative, what did uh, what did Thurid do with Legbiter? Oh, Legbiter. Uh, well, she gives it to her foster brother, Bully Thorlikson. Mm, and boom. Yep. A major plot point is now set in motion. But we're going to have to wait to see how it all comes together. For now, I think we can draw this section of the saga to a close. Sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're quite done yet. Because I oh I believe I hear a summons from slightly oh. more than arrow shot away from my front door. Well, that's confiscation courts. I know. Summons to the all thing. Hoskull Dallacolson and Ruth Hildersen. Ooh, two people at once. We're summoning multiple people at a time now. This is interesting. Yeah, this time we are. I follow my muse wherever she lead me. Okay, so we are calling on Hoskuld and Hrut. Uh, this is the sibling rivalry thing we were talking about. Yeah, sort of. I was actually, what, what oh. I want to talk about is the sibling dynamic of personality binaries in the early part of this saga. Okay. But that was kind of a mouthful for a summon. So I'm going with Hoskuld and Hrut since they're the initial example of the trope. So this is another thinly veiled digression into some other topic about the sagas. Using some poor sap from Lockstar the saga as your Trojan horse. Clever, John. Very Silence, clever. Silence, Laucon. Uh, yes, this is a <laughs> sort of about sibling rivalry. But it's right. more about something we touched on in the last episode, Summons. The repeated binary of two siblings, usually brothers, who represent two different personality types. Uh, yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier in this episode. We said mm-hmm. we were going to do this now, and yep. now we're doing it. And you're trying to make it sound smarter than what it was. Well, I know. I'm trying to. Uh, and I'll worry about <laughs> narrowing it down to a specific point in a few minutes. Okay. So let's start with Hoskold and Hrut. We've already established some of their personality differences. Uh, Hoskold's limited interpersonal skills versus Hrut's popularity is one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is Hoskold's emphasis on personal gain compared to Hrut's comparative selflessness. Or Hoskold's interest in status against Hrut's disinterest in his royal connections. All true. Uh, and we can add uh, Hoskuld's cunning versus Hrut's preference for plain dealing. Uh, mm. Although all the stuff we're coming up with really just boils down to Hoskuld's a jerk, Hrut's not. 
I mean, that's not completely inaccurate, though. Hoskold is kind of a jerk. Well, he's, I, he is. I do think it's a little bit more complex than that, though. Because Hrut's a jerk, too? Nah. Although, although it's worth noting that in other sagas, like Njal's saga, he is a little more morally gray than he is in this saga. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we don't really get much of Hrut in uh, in this saga. But mm-hmm. uh, if you think about it, this is the guy in Njal's saga who cheated on his fiance with the Queen Mother of Norway, then lied to her about his impending marriage. And he ended up having to get a divorce because of the Queen's curse on his privates. Mm-hmm. In this saga, there's only the briefest of mentions of his marriage to Un and their divorce, and no mention at all of his winter spent as Queen Gunnild's boy toy in Norway, or of the rather unfortunate curse that she placed on his little Viking. <laughs> little Viking. Okay, right. Uh, what's really going on is that Hoskull's behavior means a balancing force is needed, and Hrut fills that void. Mm-hmm. Hrut's willingness to compromise, right, to show patience, uh, enables him to balance Hoskold's deficiencies. Where this gets a little more nuanced, though, is that we're operating, I think at least, we're operating from a modern idea of what constitutes jerk, right? Definitely. What constitutes difficult behavior. Hoskold mm-hmm. and Hrut both represent masculine types that the sagas approve of. Hoskold's aggressive, he's stubborn, he's proud, and he's given to ostentation. Hrut seeks compromise, prizes family loyalties, and shows great skill in dealing with other people. But he's also proud, and he's very image conscious. Hmm. They're both a very model of a Viking sibling rivalry. Well, they're both a very model of Icelandic manly attitudes is what they are. (laughs) I mean, we could get a whole song going in here. (laughs) If you want to try uh, for it, you go right ahead. I'm going to sit right here. No, no, no. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, they represent, uh, if we if we think about it, they represent two ways of approaching masculine public performance among the Icelandic elite classes, which is one of the things that I was tr- trying to hint at that we should talk about. That mm-hmm. each of the when when we have these binaries or these differences between brothers in the sagas, um, we have to think about what it is that they imply about expected behaviors. Right. Um, it's not always as simple thing, as like one's good, one's bad. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not unique to this saga, obviously. No, no. Uh, pairs of brothers are sort of one of these sort of base units of saga construction. Some mm-hmm. sagas become almost obsessive about it. I mean, think way back to Hrovenkill's saga, which represents uh, an... I- oh, which Think back to all the way to Hrovenkill's saga, which presents an Iceland almost exclusively populated by sets of two brothers. <laughs> right. Right. Hrovenkill actually stood out in that saga because he wasn't part of a package deal. Yeah, but... Within that is the model that we're talking about. The dynamic of two brothers or foster brothers with differing life philosophies is relatively common, actually. Uh, we could look at uh, the brothers Helgi and Grim Droplogerson from Droplogersona Saga, mm. or Thormod and uh, Thorger from Fossbrother Saga, Gisli and Thorkel from Gisla Saga, Gretzir mm-hmm. and Thorstein Dromund. Mm-hmm. And I could keep going on to uh, Andy and Nick Fringer. You know, we're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're similar but different enough, right? right. Um, the only reason I can't do that is because I have two brothers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a little harder. But the, the gold standard for this trope is, of course, Ale Saga. Yep. That's where I was heading. Yep. We spent time on this one when we covered Ale Saga, but that was a while ago. In Ale's family, in what ends up being called the Murar clan, uh, there's this dichotomy within the genetic lines of the family. On the one hand, you get men like Ale, his father, Scott Legrim, and his grandfather, Kveldolf. Men who are grim, introverted types, Mm -hmm. physically unattractive and even beast-like in nature, but respected for their clever minds, respected for their work ethic and their superiority in battle. Uh 
Uh, uh, and on the other side of the family are the good-looking people, right? The popular outgoing folks like Ail's uncle Thorolf or his brother Thorolf, his maternal grandfather Ingvar and so on, right? Uh, people who succeed because of their ability to make friends and charm kings and throw mm-hmm. great parties. Yeah. Yeah, they've got a, a great social intelligence, these, mm-hmm. this yes. side of the family. Um, and Thank why you, we, we didn't talk... <laughs> And while we didn't talk much about this at the time, this is another version of the pattern that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, They couldn't be more different, but both types of men in Ail's family are highly successful in in ways that tend to define success. Right. There isn't just one way to win the game of public reputation. Yeah. In the game of public reputation, you win or you die. Uh, is it okay if I just continue being an armchair scholar? It, it seems less dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it's safer than what we're doing. <laughs> it, it actually makes sense to bring this into the story now, since Thorgerd Ale's daughter is now a part of our story. Mm-hmm. Through her, Kjartan Olafsson is an inheritor of that same family line. And we are told at the end of Ale Saga that the two types in the family breed true in future generations. So Kjartan is clearly going to be the outgoing, handsome popular Thorolf type of guy. Right, like his mother and like his great-uncle and great-great-uncle Thorolf. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, now, I want to drag us back to Lakstala Saga. A number of people have written about this repeated motif of the brothers who come into conflict. Mm-hmm. First, Hoskuld and Hrut. Now, Olaf and Thorlik. And we've just met Kjartan and Boli, uh, foster brothers who will take up that mantle in the next generation. And yeah, like in Ale Saga, there isn't just one way to achieve a manly reputation. They both right. can do it. Right. Hrut and Olaf are respected and widely liked for their efforts to get along with their more difficult brothers. Right. They're manly because of their forbearance, their patience, their willingness to compromise and to seek peaceful resolutions within their family. Mm-hmm. But I want to be clear, it's not like Hoskuld or Thorlik suffer public scorn for their behavior. Hoskuld is a widely respected chieftain. He's got many friends. Thorlik seems to be doing very well for himself. Uh, They achieve manly repute by elbowing their way through life, asserting themselves, using stubbornness as a crowbar to get what and where they want. The saga's author isn't fully neutral on the subject, though. I think we should admit Mm -hmm. that. We do get hints, mostly from the women of the sagas, that this bull-in-a-china-shop approach to life it's more socially problematic. I don't think that the Christian authors of the 13th century and mm-hmm. 14th century are really promoting that, that that approach to life. Sure. But we're also, I think, seeing a spin on this trope. The pair of brothers package is just one way to present and contrast two different ways of being perceived as significant. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, we're calling it manly reputation because we're talking about brothers. But in Lakstala and in some other sagas, honestly... We do see women taking sides in this same contrast. Right? Think of Alv of Mavathleth in uh, Erbage Saga, right? whose hand is severed when she tries to break up a fight and then tries to hide the injury in the name of maintaining the peace. Mm-hmm. Right? That's admirable. Right? That behavior is admirable. Or Alv the Deep-Minded in this saga, right? who rises to prominence by creating social ties, by weaving those families together, participating in the culture of generosity and gift exchange. Hmm. Or or Jorin, Hoskold's wife, mm. who encourages a peaceful reconciliation between, between Hoskold and Hrut, when Hoskold would rather follow his usual instinct for tone-deaf violence. And <laughs> yes. on the other side, we have examples like, well, like like Thorgir, yeah. or Gudrun Oswif's daughter, 
in the next generation. We're going to meet her finally in the next uh, mm-hmm. episode. Uh, she engages in the same stubborn pursuit of status through aggression and counter-aggression that defines so many men's interactions in the saga. Yeah, but – and this is the thing. Women are often not talked about that way though because I think quite a few scholars slip into this differentiating terminology when talking about men and women in the sagas even mm-hmm. when the behaviors aren't very different. Men are talked about as being peaceful or violent because their peacefulness or violence is expressed directly. Through picking up an axe and lopping off their opponent's limbs. Mm-hmm. Or choosing not to. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, but women generally use their connections, their families, to express their preference for peaceful resolution or blood vengeance. Their motives aren't much different. The results aren't much different. But scholars often slip into terms like instigators or counselors of violence when it comes to women. Mm. Uh, I think it misses the point that connections and families, words and silence are the weapons of women in the sagas. I I love the way Kari Gislason describes women in the sagas. He says, when words are only weapons, you're likely to say something interesting. Mm, I like it. Now, th- this is still off topic, but we do occasionally see men who behave that way, right? Mm. Uh, someone like Snorri Gothi is that type. Sure. His biggest moments of aggression tend to involve him manipulating other people, speaking. Absolutely. Though he does wield a sword every once in a while. Right. Although when he does, he's frankly, and I say this as, you know, he's one of my thingmen. Uh, he's not the greatest swordsman in Iceland by a wide <laughs> margin. Uh, what, he's, what he's unparalleled at is convincing other people to wield their swords on his behalf. Yeah. Uh, but let's bring this back to our sets of siblings. Hoskold, Hrut, and Olaf Thorlik establish a pattern. And just like in Ale Saga, that gets complicated in the third generation. Mm-hmm. In Ale Saga, it gets complicated because Ale and his brother Thorolf turn out to be an odd mix of their ancestors' qualities. In this saga, the pattern is dis- disrupted in two different ways at once. Uh, the first is uh, it's something I think we touched on last episode. Gudrun Oswald's daughter is going to create a triad with these two, and her behaviors and motives are just as complicated as theirs. Yeah, she's another source of potential conflict. Mm-hmm. She's at least as stubborn and aggressive as Kjartan and Boli, and equally conscious of her reputation and honor. So that's going to cause yes. problems. And the other complication is that all three of them are aware of the need for a peacemaker, but none of them want to be the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what we have are three people who are going to be locked into a contest with one another in which all three of them want that Hoskold or Thorlik role. And since that role is characterized by stubbornness, none of them are willing to back down. Exactly. It's it's great for narrative tension and conflict, not so great for interpersonal or fraternal bonds. Yeah. So what we're saying is the pattern that's being established through Olaf and Thorlik is important in part because of the way that the next generation will play variations on that theme of sibling tension. Yes, precisely that. Okay. Now, I'm not sure we actually put Hoskold and Frut on trial there, but (laughs) still a good way to wrap this up. And it did touch on that that question of siblings that I was so interested in. Absolutely. Um, And again, this is something that we're going to be revisiting over and over again throughout this saga. That's right. Now, uh, we had right. intended to do a rune sack uh, question or two for tonight, but uh, John's dogs were going crazy a little earlier. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> and, guys. Uh, we had some delays. We're going to be cutting out as much as we can, but you'll probably hear them in the background. I apologize. 
I've I've had this puppy for 48 hours and he and my two year old <laughs> dog are bonding in a big way in a big, loud way. Yes, but it's really nice. And you said it's the first time that they really started playing with each other. So yeah. that, that's a good thing. Yeah, they saved um, it for the but, microphone. So, yay. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and also, I so, do have uh, to at some point get them outside again so that uh, we don't have any accidents inside the house. Yeah, and uh, given how late it is, and I'm I'm driving to Tallahassee tomorrow to see my parents, um, we're gonna call it a day rather than yeah. jump into the rune yeah. sack. I hope that's okay with everyone. We'll get to it uh, next time. Right. Uh, so um, we'll be back soon with the next episode of our investigation of Lockstyle Saga. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah. let us know what you think of the story so far, or what we got wrong, or God help us, what we got right. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of Thorgoth and Olaf so far? Is there a better way to handle a revenant under the doorstop? Mm-hmm. Are we being unfair to Thorlik Hoskelson? How much would you give for a sword named Legbiter? And what would your sword be called? Yeah, what would that bite? <laughs> Andy, how do they tell us what their swords bite? Well, you can drop us a line on our Facebook page where we are Saga Thing Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter where we are at Saga Thing Pod. And you can check in on our WordPress blog, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com There's email for those of you who prefer that personal touch where we are sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or you can join in on our Discord where the conversation flows like mead and the mead flows like water. And if none of that works, try calling your friends and family instead. They'd love to hear from you. That was different. All right. Uh, That's a wrap for this episode. We're going to be back soon with the next episode of Lockstyle Saga, where we will finally meet Gudrun Olswif's daughter. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Do you know my, one of my favorite jokes of all time? No. Uh, is that, you know, uh, uh, there's this woman in Galilee who's uh, being attacked by a mob. Uh, she's a prostitute. And she's being attacked by the mob. She uh, covers herself because they're throwing rocks at her and she's sort of being beaten. She's very, she's sort of very, very uh, vulnerable in that moment. And Christ jumps out of the crowd and stands in front of her and yells, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And as he finishes speaking, a stone like wings over his shoulder and nails the woman in the head. And he turns to the crowd and says, Mom! (laughs) That's one of your favorite jokes? Yes. I was raised Catholic, for God's Uh, sake. It's a very funny Catholic joke. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. Come on, Mom! (laughs) Ah, The hell with you.